Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. audience my name is maurice selby and you are listening to the one and only health in harlem on whcr 90.3 fm new york the voice of harlem and the health in harlem podcast featured on spotify apple Podcasts, podbean google Podcasts, amazon we're out there ladies and gentlemen and today i bring to you all our sixth covid19 vaccine update We have had this series going on now since essentially even before the emergency use authorizations from the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, And essentially, this is really just to give you the absolute best information, ladies and gentlemen, to make this decision on whether to get vaccinated against COVID-19 or not. Tons of information out there. There is a lot of good information On the other hand, there is a lot of false myths and disinformation out there, and that is what we are trying to combat with this podcast. And one thing that I always say is, right, I don't like being a talking head, um, and we don't like to just have sort of a conversation amongst ourselves um, as far as my co-hosts on this program. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we do want to open a dialogue with you all out there. And so if you have any questions, comments, concerns, um, especially regarding the COVID-19 vaccine and just COVID in general, we always ask that you just hit us up uh, with those questions, those concerns, and we will address them. If not uh, on the forum you post them on, so if it's not on Facebook or on Podbean or uh, any of the other podcast platforms, uh, we will definitely address it on our upcoming programs. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen, we just want to have a conversation with you all about these topics. And now with that said, we're just going to jump right in here. Definitely made some significant progress here in the United States. Total vaccine doses administered 321,549,335. And as far as uh, those administered, so that was just the delivered, right? Um, The actual amount of vaccines that have been produced and delivered uh, here in the United States. As far as what has been administered, 249,566,820. And when we break down 
those totals, um, at least one dose in this country. So uh, as far as uh, administrations in which at least one dose was administered, we have 148,562,891. And as far as those individuals that are fully vaccinated uh, in this country, so either they got two shots of the Pfizer vaccine or two shots of Moderna or at least one shot of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, we have fully vaccinated 107,346,533. And that amounts to about 32.3% of the population here in, in the United States that have been fully vaccinated. And we have at least, uh, as far as it, those that received at least one dose, 44.7%. So we've made significant progress since the initial emergency use authorizations of these vaccines uh, starting in December of 2020. And we definitely have seen significant results up to this point. When we look at the number of seniors, the percentage of seniors that have been vaccinated, we're talking about 83% that have received at least one dose and 70.1% that have been fully vaccinated. That is in that age group greater than 65 years of age. And what we've begun to see is significant drops in the death rates and hospitalization rates in that population, especially when we look at one of the hardest hit groups, right? Those individuals residing in nursing homes, we've seen the death rates across the country plummet um, in those individuals that are older than 65, even living on their own um, and even with comorbid illnesses. So those individuals with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, obesity, we've seen the hospitalization and death rates amongst those groups fall. What we do see now, unfortunately, is the hospitalization rates uh, and complication rates rising amongst younger individuals and really, um, in general, the segment of the population that have not been vaccinated up to this point. Uh, and so we, we are seeing in real time, essentially, the efficacy of these vaccines, the effectiveness of these vaccines, right? When we, we first heard those numbers coming out, 95% effective for Pfizer, 94% uh, effective for the Moderna vaccine, 70% effective, which is actually possibly quite a bit higher um, as the Johnson & Johnson during their trials for their vaccine. Uh, it was at a time when the caseload, when the burden of COVID-19 um, was among its highest here in this country, right? So that uh, efficacy number could be higher for the Johnson & Johnson uh, product. But what we've seen is that these, these vaccines are working. And before our eyes, we are seeing a huge uh, transformation in terms of how this outbreak is playing out. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, on Monday, they announced that 22.4% of new COVID cases are in children. Now, this can be explained by many different factors. We have the loosening of restrictions. We have children going back to school, right, physically um, in larger numbers. We also have the rise of variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that can all contribute to the increased numbers of diagnoses we're seeing amongst children. But one of the things that we all must really acknowledge, and even the CDC backs this up, is that 
a, a lot of this is attributed to the vaccination campaign, right? In terms of the uh, lowest vaccination rates in this country, right? The vaccines are not currently authorized for use in children under the age of 16. And thus, uh, we've seen an increase in the number of diagnoses and the number of diagnosed cases of COVID-19 uh, in children. And so we really need to sit back and think about what is happening before us and what we need to think about and consider when we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine and its rollout across the country. The Kaiser Family Foundation is still reporting that about a third of American adults are still resistant to vaccines. There is a large amount of Republicans making up a substantial part of that group. And also we see, again, the same thing that we've been seeing as far as challenges in marginalized communities, especially the black community, right, where there is still a good amount of hesitancy. However, there have been inroads made um, in those groups um, as far as the increasing the vaccination rates. And I'll just tell you, in one of my experiences, um, actually in the emergency department had a patient um, that had signs and symptoms very much consistent with COVID-19. Thankfully, he was not in the worst shape and had a conversation with them about the expectations uh, of his illness, you know, when to come back because he was doing pretty well. So I was going to send this person out and um, told them about, you know, when to come back to the emergency department. God forbid if anything changed regarding their symptoms or things got worse. And at the end of that conversation, I just threw it in there. I was like, well, one thing, are you planning to get vaccinated? And I was surprised actually when uh, the person said yes, uh, surprised and very excited. And, you know, we had a, a another brief little conversation just talking about that. And uh, he was saying that he was on the fence before, but then had been um, just getting a lot of information and actually from some reliable sources um, in terms of doing his own research and looking at some of the conversations that were being had, um, even on social media, uh, but also in the general media. And he came to the conclusion that, hey, this was something that he was going to do that he felt um, it would benefit him and also that uh, it is safe. And this was a person, right, that had some of the same, very same concerns that we've addressed on this program, some of the same concerns that I've had personally in considering and even accepting the vaccine. And this person was able to come to that conclusion, right, after really giving it some really good thought. And so with that said, um, I think it is something that we can really make a decision for ourselves, right? If you're not going to get it at least, and this is something that we say every week on this show, make sure that you are making that decision based on solid, actual, factual information and uh, really just being mindful of a lot of the harmful information that is out there when it comes to this intervention. Now, before I get into some more updates as far as these COVID vaccines, I just want to say to the naysayers out there, the resistant folks, the I hate to use the term, but anti-vaxxers, however you might label yourself or consider yourself, uh, 
before you tune out, right? Because you're probably going to say, well, this guy's going to say the same thing that I've already know. I'll probably research on my own. Well, I have something for you. So don't tune out just yet. Just give me some time and I will hopefully be able to speak to you. That is my goal. Um, and really uh, just, you know, give you some ideas on how we can think about these interventions. Um, and you might not like what I have to say. You might totally disagree, but hear me out, you know, because I've, I've definitely been keeping my ear to the ground, trying to hear some of the arguments um, that are flat out absolutely against this. And, you know, the no go um, under any scenario folks out there um, definitely been keeping my ears to the ground in that regard and hearing out your concerns. And and with that said, I'm hoping that you can just hear me um, in this conversation again, this conversation that we are trying to have with one another and just going to jump into some updates really quick. So hold on to those folks. But I do have to get some uh, more good information out there. And so as of April 23rd, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted 10 to 4 in favor of reaffirming its interim recommendation for the use of the Janssen a.k.a. Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine in all persons greater than 18 years of age under the Food and Drug Administration's emergency use authorization. In that vote, and actually it's just interesting to note that one member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, one member recused themselves from voting because of participation in clinical trials and other studies involving uh, the companies that are producing the COVID-19 vaccines, right? So they identified in themselves a conflict of interest. And so that person said, hey, I'm not, I'm out. I'm not going to vote um, because I could have some undue influence. Interesting, right? Um, when we talk about transparency, this person removed themselves from that vote for that reason. Uh, after the vote, the members of the committee that voted no indicated they would have, basically they just wanted stronger language uh, talking about the risks of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And just uh, real quick, I'll stop there. So that is basically the term that was given to this new syndrome, right? This complication that might be connected to the Johnson and Johnson uh, and even the AstraZeneca vaccines. So basically it is thrombosis, right? Clots forming in the context of thrombocytopenia, which is a fancy term to say a low platelet count. Um, that is what was identified in these individuals that had uh, this complication. And so that is the term that is being used at this point to describe that complication. TTS, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And Basically, these individuals have voted, hey, we don't want to uh, right, uh, continue uh, resumption of this uh, administration of this vaccine. Basically, all they wanted was just stronger language talking about the risks of TTS among women in the age group 18 to 49 years of age, which was the age group that was affected uh, when it came to looking at these cases. And essentially, the committee laid out that this does seem to be a very rare syndrome 
that involves this acute um, arterial or venous occlusion, right, or clots forming in the arteries or the veins with the new onset of this low platelet count in patients that had no recent known exposure to heparin, which uh, we talked about this in a prior show that heparin, right, we see a similar um, adverse effect of heparin use, which is heparin is a blood thinner. Um, And so uh, with no recent known history of exposure to that, right, and these were individuals that had been recently vaccinated, there seems to be this uh, association um, or a potential causal link of the vaccine causing these complications. And what's interesting, we'll stop here again because, right, this is, once again, ladies and gentlemen, the vaccine adverse event reporting system doing its job, essentially, having picked out this possible signal of adverse effects or harm being done with the vaccines. Now, all in all, in the United States, uh, 12 of 15 persons with TTS that occurred after the Janssen COVID-19 uh, vaccine was administered, 12 of those individuals, 12 out of the 15, had cerebral venous sinus thrombosis with thrombocytopenia or with that low platelet count. Now, basically, that's just a, a big uh, uh, blood clot in the one of the uh, veins of the brain. And what was seen here in the United States uh, with this vaccine is similar to what was seen with the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in Europe. And just of note, the Johnson and Johnson or Janssen vaccine is based on a human adenoviral vector, uh, which is essentially a weakened or inactivated virus. that typically, right, the adenovirus typically causes the common cold uh, in human beings. But this is a weakened virus, uh, a rare form of this very weakened virus that has genetic material that encodes or codes for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And so by giving this injection with these weakened adenoviruses containing that genetic material, of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, right? Our bodies would then begin to manufacture that protein. Our immune system would recognize it and attack it and form, ultimately we would form antibodies that would make us immune to SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. The AstraZeneca vaccine, similar, however, it was a chimpanzee adenoviral vector that was used. And now you might ask, why is that the case? Why are you using chimpanzee viruses, right? Inactivated chimpanzee viruses in us. Why does adenovirus? Um, Well, when we talk about adenoviruses in human beings, there are probably many of us walking around that have have been exposed to uh, adenovirus We might have had a cold or cold like symptoms related to that virus. And so there is a large chunk of the population on this planet that have probably some immunity to adenoviruses, especially some of the more common types of adenovirus out there. And so with that said, Johnson and Johnson used a very rare type of adenovirus, um, one that probably a lot of people don't have any immunity to 
um, so that when exposed to this, right, our bodies wouldn't just wipe it out completely and really nix the delivery of the genetic material encoding that spike protein, right? Um, because our bodies would probably mount a very vigorous immune response um, and really destroy the vaccine before it was able to deliver the genetic material encoding that spike protein and therefore allowing us to uh, develop our antibodies to that. And the same thing with the chimpanzee adenoviral vector. Um, a chimpanzee adenovirus, probably as a human being, you probably should not have antibodies to that. And th that is why that was used um, in order to put that genetic material of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein in there so that we can actually have the delivery of this genetic material and therefore, right, spur that immune response. Um, now, to the skeptics out there, right, because I, I told you, just hang on, because I got something for you, because I, I probably, hopefully I didn't scare you um, with that information. And again, if you have any questions about that part of this conversation, just hit me up, hit me up online, type in health in Harlem on your search box on Facebook, log into our Podbean page on our site, put your questions there, put your comments there so that I can address them and clear up any uh, misconceptions or anything that was not clear or confusing in what we just went through. Now, as of April 21st, there were 7.98 million doses of the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine that had been administered in the United States. And the vaccine safety monitoring system had received 15 reports of right that TTS complication after the Janssen COVID-19 vaccination was administered. And when we look at those numbers, we're talking about TTS, right, reporting rates that were about seven cases, 7.0 cases per million Janssen COVID-19 vaccine doses administered to women aged 18 to 49 years of age. And for women aged 50 years and over, that rate corresponded to 0 0.9 per million women, right, aged 50 or above. And when we look at the highest reported rates, it was highest among women aged 30 to 39 years of age with, and basically that, that broke down to 11.8 TTS cases per 1 million Janssen COVID-19 doses administered. Now that's the, the key word here, right? Is that this is a very rare complication, uh, especially even when we look at the AstraZeneca vaccine, right, where that rate was a little bit higher. We're talking about one potentially in 100,000 doses with the Janssen, uh, aka Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're talking about, right, one in a million. And when we really look at the targeted age group, age 30 to 39, with the highest rate, um, only 11.8 cases per 1 million doses administered. And the thing is, too, that as we go on and continue to study this right now, that the vaccine adverse event reporting system is aware of this as a potential complication of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Clinicians out there, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, 
physician assistants are aware of this as a potential complication, uh, we're on the lookout for it. That is one thing uh, for sure is that we are closely monitoring this vaccine uh, for safety and everyone is aware. And also we might learn more in the future as far as additional individuals that are at higher risk from complications from this. Um, so all of this data that is being gathered, right, is only going to make these interventions safer, right? They are likely to get safer uh, before they become more dangerous as time goes on. And we can see that now, right? Now that we have these recommendations uh, and this information after this pause by the CDC and the FDA in terms of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, just of note, no cases of cerebrovenous sinus thrombosis with thrombocytopenia have been reported after receipt of either the Moderna or Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines. There was some stuff that was circulating in the media, even on social media, I think, talking about this complication. But to date, um, according to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, there just have not been any cases like that observed with uh, either of those mRNA vaccines. And just a, a quick uh, aside, as far as right, what is behind this, uh, this is something that is still being worked out. There are some experts out there. Um, and the, again, this is all theoretical. These are all just sort of uh, hypotheses or best guesses at this point. Um, but some of the experts out there are pointing to possibly the adenovirus vector component of these vaccines being the cause uh, of this complication. There are some um, even looking at the material, the genetic material encoding the spike protein as a possible cause. Um, there are some there is some evidence going against that, however, in that the spike protein that is encoded in the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is pretty much the same as that used in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Um, and so really this is just up in the air right now. No one fully knows uh, the mechanism behind this complication, but that is something too that is currently being uh, studied aggressively. All right. And now I'm just going to pivot to some new recommendations came that came out last week from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention regarding masks. And essentially, the CDC said that if you are fully vaccinated, and I'm going to stop there for a second, fully vaccinated means either you have received one dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or two doses of the Pfizer and or Moderna vaccines. And basically, they said that if you've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, you can forego wearing a mask outdoors. Um, but they did urge the continued use of face coverings or masks in indoor settings. And if you're going to be in a very crowded outdoor area and really they even played it even safer in, in modestly large gatherings, you should probably consider right? Wearing a mask, even if you've been fully vaccinated. Now we've come a long way um, from the initial point of the outbreak, right? Where it was not recommended to wear a mask because it did, wasn't seen as being helpful to the individual. 
nor to those around um, in terms of decreasing the spread. But then we learned very quickly that, hey, in order to get control of this, we need to stop the spread. And we found that masks were very critical in slowing the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And now we're at the point where we have these vaccines that are so effective um, in preventing COVID-19. And even there's evidence coming out now pointing towards the decreased shedding or spread of virus by individuals that have been vaccinated. So essentially, if you've been vaccinated, right, even if you get infected with COVID-19, not only are you likely to have a milder, much milder form of the illness, but also there's evidence coming out showing that individuals are less likely to spread the illness uh, as well. And so with that said, right, the CDC made this recommendation um, really just relaxing the mask uh, policies throughout the country. And this is a this is a huge celebration. You know, for me, I actually have been going on my my uh, runs uh, over the last few days maskless, which is just so liberating. I really can't even explain just how good it feels. Um, and especially, man, you know, I'd be doing like five, sometimes seven mile runs and I would get to that <laughs> third or fourth mile where, you know, it's starting to huff and puff a little more, especially around here in Georgia. There's hills everywhere. And so I'd have to take the mask down sometimes, you know, um, and only put it up when passing people that were sort of around me or coming towards me, you know, um, and, and that was that was just so amazing. Just running, um, knowing that I am much less likely to get sick um, if there is covid out there in the atmosphere somewhere where I'm running, but also that I am likely not going to spread it to anyone. And, you know, when looking at it from the other lens, though, um, this relaxation of mass guidelines. Now, there was the effect or feared effect of individuals being sort of too relaxed and even individuals that have been that are not vaccinated or only partly vaccinated, um, actually sort of not being as diligent about their mask wearing in public. Uh, but really, let's just stay positive, ladies and gentlemen, look at this, right? Because um, when we talk about these recommendations, this is based on the best evidence available. And at this point, all of the evidence is pointing toward us getting a much better handle on this crisis here in the United States. And as we said at the outset of the show, falling death rates, falling hospitalization rates, um, especially amongst those populations that have been fully vaccinated. And also we see, right, decreased spread of the virus to the point where the CDC was able to, uh, I would say, comfortably make this recommendation, right? Because this wasn't just something buried on their websites. Um, they actually went pretty public about this and we saw it blared out all over the mainstream media uh, as far as the the loosening of mask guidelines. And so with that said, the new recommendations say fully vaccinated individuals can engage in the following activities without wearing masks. That includes walking, running, hiking or biking outdoors alone or with members of their household. Uh, they can attend small outdoor gatherings with fully vaccinated family and friends. They can attend small outdoor gatherings with a mixture of fully vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals 
and dining at outdoor restaurants with friends from multiple households is also considered safe. And basically, fully vaccinated people can also attend crowded outdoor events and live performances, parades, sporting events. Um, but really, they should uh, remain masks in those settings. And the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said in a briefing briefing by the Biden administration, over the past year, we have spent a lot of time telling Americans what they cannot do, what they should not do. Today, I'm going to tell you some of the things you can do if you are fully vaccinated. And basically, she said, today is another day we can take a step back to the normalcy of before. And so there it is, ladies and gentlemen, we are making big progress in this fight uh, against COVID-19. But the fight, ladies and gentlemen, is not over. And so really what it comes down to is getting into our next topic for this program, which is really just talking about continuing to increase the vaccination rates in this country. There are reports coming out about the Food and Drug Administration preparing to authorize the use of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine in adolescents 12 to 15 years of age, possibly by early next week. And this is according to officials that are familiar with the agency's plans. And this would essentially open up the vaccination program to millions more people um, in this country, and especially in a critical uh, age group. We did talk about earlier, right, the 18 to 24 age group has been the highest case rates, among the highest case rates uh, for the majority of the pandemic. And most recently, right, the American Academy of Pediatrics announcing that, as we said, 20 in excess of 20 percent of new COVID cases being seen in children um, and also with the push to get kids back to school, right, full time in-person learning. This is really the logical next step is to talk about vaccinating uh, this age group and this age group in particular, because one thing that we've learned up to this point and is, is really interesting and I would say that, thank God it is this way, is that in the younger children, we're talking about school age children, um, we don't see the infection rates as high as we do in other diseases, especially when we talk about influenza. Right. That was one of the major drivers of influenza uh, epidemics each year was just the spread amongst children and bringing it home to their families and you know, things sort of spreading from there. But we really didn't see that with COVID. <clears throat> and until now, right, we're starting to see this uptick in the number of pediatric cases being diagnosed. And we know that once children start to turn, uh, hit that adolescent age, they are more likely uh, for a variety of reasons, just more likely to spread the illness. And we've also learned that while the vast majority of children do have mild symptoms and they get through this illness without really any complications or residual problems, we do see some complications in some individuals, especially when we talk about multi-system inflammatory syndrome, this really complex um, immune-mediated process 
that leads to organ dysfunction and even organ failure and has resulted in the deaths of uh, children in this country, right? This is a potentially serious diagnosis that can be avoided by vaccinating uh, children. And so Pfizer reported several weeks ago that none of the adolescents in their clinical trials that received the vaccine, none of them developed symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infections, and therefore none of of them were diagnosed with COVID-19. And the company basically said that volunteers produced strong antibody responses and experienced about the same side effects uh, that we see in individuals aged 16 to 25. And so here we have it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this vaccine potentially being, um, from the data that we have thus far, very effective and also very safe with children only experiencing right the usual local tissue um, pain or discomfort that they might experience at the injection site, maybe some fever or chills, a headache, um, but largely the children in this study really just tolerating the intervention fairly well and having that protection going forward. And as for these vaccines being made available for younger, even younger children, um, that is something that is still being studied at the moment. And I imagine that if we're seeing the efficacy, you know, being this good amongst adolescents, I think And actually, I'm hoping that the data just really pans out to be as good for younger children, Uh, because one thing that's that's something that's been noted consistently by the experts out there, especially when we talk about this country reaching herd immunity, which as an aside, ladies and gentlemen, just because of the struggles we're having with vaccine hesitancy right now, um, there are experts out there saying that we are unlikely to meet that goal of herd immunity. Uh, but just getting back to right, what we said with, with regarding our children, uh, in addition to protecting our children, that is really going to be instrumental in protecting all of us um, in that strive to reach herd immunity, because we're talking about a significant chunk of the population that is just not eligible to be vaccinated at this time. And all of those children that are under 16 years of age that we know very well can carry the illness and we know very well that they can spread the illness especially in that uh, group of older kids those adolescents um, very proficient in spreading this uh, to older individuals and those individuals right such as teachers and administrators in schools taking it home to their parents uh, grandparents uh, other people in the household that might be more vulnerable to COVID-19 this is the goal to really just stop this this disease in its track by getting a vast majority of the population vaccinated. And so, folks, that brings me to the last part of the conversation, because I know out there, right, uh, to the skeptics out there, to the uh, folks that are just adamantly against this, thank you for hanging in there, right, because now I'm going to talk to you as promised, now, I've, I've always said on this program that I am not a salesman. I can assure you all that I have no conflicts of interest. I do not own stock in Moderna, nor Pfizer, nor Johnson & Johnson. 
I will say that I do have an agenda, and that is to get you to strongly consider getting vaccinated. Now, notice what I said, strongly consider. I am not telling you how to live your life. I am not telling you what is right, what is wrong. I am simply here to try to give you the best information possible to help you make the best decision possible for yourself, for your family, for your community. That's the whole purpose of this. And so with that said, we know that about a third of American adults are still resisting vaccines. There is polling out there that is showing some interesting trends, one with white males, especially white male conservatives or Republicans being a substantial part of the hesitant group. But as we said earlier in the program, we also see that amongst minorities, especially black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, really any marginalized population in this country, looking back to the history of abuse and exploitation, mistreatment by the scientific and medical communities. That is definitely a big part of that. And one thing, too, that we've noticed is that we've made some inroads in getting people to roll up their sleeves. Now, part of that is due to an information campaign, right, and a public awareness campaign just talking about the vaccines, their benefits, potential side effects and risks of the vaccines, and really just laying that out for individuals to appreciate and therefore then make their own informed decision about this. And I do want to just um, pat ourselves on the back here on Health in Harlem and on WHCR and helping to make that happen and getting that information out there. But there is research um, coming from some epidemiologists and social psychologists that really are probing into why there is still so much vaccine hesitancy. And one thing that is being found is that, right, just the information campaign, just getting the facts out there, the data out there, and laying it all out there for everyone to view for themselves, that just doesn't do it for everyone. In a December 2017 article published in Nature Human Behavior by Avnika B. Amin et al., the title of that article, Association of Moral Values with Vaccine Hesitancy, they lay out, and this is before the pandemic, right? We know we were struggling with vaccine hesitancy and resistance in this country. We saw resultant from that decreased vaccination rates of things that we traditionally suppressed in this country. Um, when we look at things like measles, uh, when we look at things like diphtheria uh, coming back into play because of waning vaccination rates, well, they address that in this article, um, the hesitancy that led to the decrease in vaccination rates for those diseases. They basically show that there are certain moral intuitions that basically form the basis of individuals being right resistant uh, or even hesitant to vaccination, essentially. And, and this basically showed that this is not just an informational prop problem, really. Right. And we know this because we know of individuals out there that are highly educated, that are well versed in science. We know of individuals that are not even that well versed in science, but they know. Right. Some of the information, they even get their information from reliable sources and still decide not to vaccinate. 
And what this paper really pointed to was that there is a set of psychological characteristics that might make one more skeptical or more hesitant to vaccinate. And really what this boils down to, right, is that the way that some people see the world might influence their receptiveness to being vaccinated. And so when we look at these different groups, right, we know, uh, for instance, when we talk about this hesitancy amongst Republicans, uh, amongst white males, there is an association of mistrust of the government that comes with that. Right. And so this is the issue for those individuals is that this coming on down from the government as a government imperative, this mass vaccination campaign, really pushing people to roll up their sleeves and accept this intervention, right? This even mandate, right? As far as uh, when we talk about things like vaccine passports and people being allowed to do things or not do, do things based on their vaccination status. Even if we look at, for instance, the new changes to the CDC guidelines regarding mask use, right? They look at this as trampling on their rights or really um, encroaching upon their liberties and thus, right, turning up their nose at the vaccine and that they don't want to be told what to do by the government. They don't trust the government um, with that said, um, especially when we look at what has been going on regarding the most recent elections and sort of the controversy surrounding that, which we will not go anywhere near. Uh, but these are factors that are playing into their minds. Now, anybody out there that's listening that is a white male or Republican, you are more than welcome to challenge me uh, on this assertion. Um, but this is what the data is showing, right? Uh, in, in a lot of the polling that is taking place out there. And this might be some of the uh, background to that. And now one thing I want to say to that is essentially, right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I can definitely understand your reservations with the government, with government mandates and encroaching on liberties, because that is another thing that was that was emphasized in that paper was that individuals look at this as right a challenge to their liberty, to their ability to make decisions for themselves and their families. Well, one thing I will say is that government plays a big role, uh, probably a bigger role than we think about in our lives. Right. And that I can see and understand your lack of trust in the government uh, when it comes to an intervention like this. But we do trust government with a lot of other things that we don't really think about day to day and that we don't really consider in our risk benefit analysis. Right. Um, each and every day that we walk this earth. So the roads that we drive on, the trains that we take to and fro from work, the meals that we eat and those, you know, approval stickers that we see on our produce, on our meats, uh, really on pretty much almost every product that we use and consume. Uh, even some of the services, both private and public that we all use in our day to day lives, if they are not directly government run, they are many, many times government regulated, right? We essentially depend on our government to make sure that the things that we consume, the services that we benefit from each and every day, it's the government that is 
inspecting those things. It is the government that is putting their stamp of approval for that use of each and every day. And while we, right, I mean, looking at the figures that we have at the top of our leadership, um, especially depending on your politics, you might say like, yeah, this person, you know, I don't fully trust them or what they recommend. I don't like their politics. That is totally understood. But I can assure you that there are individuals out there. And I know I will say this. I know because I work with some of them each and every day um, as a professional. But there are individuals out there that are dedicated to providing this service, these various services, I would say, to each and every one of us in this society. Right. The elevator inspectors in New York City that are inspecting those elevators and make it sure that you can make it from top down and vice versa. Right. Safely without any malfunctions or terrible accidents taking place. Those individuals are working hard. They live for what they do day in, day out. They are committed to what they do uh, in making sure that our elevators are safe. When we talk about the inspection of bridges and tunnels, that they don't collapse as we're right on our way back and forth from work. Uh, The food inspectors and safety personnel that make sure that our food and produce are safe for consumption Uh, These individuals are dedicated and they go to work each and every day to protect us. Right. And so rather than trust the government, let's trust in each other. Right. That we're each the vast majority of us are doing the right thing each and every day to make sure that we can all live happy and healthy lives. That's where I would put my trust. And I say that I work with some of these individuals because I know some of these researchers that worked on these vaccines. I know their commitment to medicine and science and really just, you know, doing something that we can all benefit from just because just because that's what they like to do. You have researchers that have studied and worked to learn as much about the coronavirus as possible. Right. So that we can use that information to make strides in this pandemic. You have individuals out there from the outset of the original SARS outbreak in 2002, right, that worked all these years uh, dealing with that virus and researching that outbreak, uh, dealing with MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and that came out another coronavirus, deadly coronavirus uh, that arose in 2012 and continuing to do their research, right, so that when this all went down with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, they were ready. These were individuals that dedicated their lives, their work to making something like what we have today as far as these various vaccines that are available for use and that we know are effective and that we know are very safe. This was their life work, right? That is what I trust. That's what I trust. The energy, the commitment, the dedication that went into developing these interventions that we all might benefit from. That's what I look, that's what I look to. I look to that individual on the advisory committee on immunization practices that declined to vote period, right? Because of that conflict of interest um, in terms of reinstating the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for, uh, for use, that person excused themselves because they knew that they might bring a conflict of interest to the table. So they did not vote, right? 
these are individuals and that person is not profiting or not compensated for that. They are not profiting in any way off of that. And so they excuse themselves uh, from that. But those are the individuals. That's what I look to. That is where I put my trust in the individual, not just the government. I put my trust in individuals like Dr. Stephen J. Thomas, whom we interviewed on this program, who was among the researchers right in those uh, those trials, those phase three trials of the Pfizer vaccine that led to the FDA's emergency use authorization for that vaccine. Those are the individuals that I put my trust in. Those individuals that wake up each and every day, just as we all do, they get out of their bed, they brush their teeth, they get dressed, eat breakfast, commute to work, they do what they have to do. And this is the product they put out, right? From their years of hard work and dedication. That's what I put my trust in. Now, there are some other insights coming from this sort of uh, social science inquiry into vaccine hesitancy and resistance. And they are finding that there are many individuals that are just skeptics, right? They are the ones that are skeptical of everything in life, which is awesome, right? They ask the questions. They are the ones that probably do their own research, um, even when giving in, given information uh, from experts and authorities around them. If anything, they might even be resistant to authority figures sort of telling them what to do. Well, the skeptics out there, we are learning that these are the individuals that care about their bodies and minds, right? About the purity, uh, quote unquote, of their bodies and minds and what goes into their bodies. And they even have concerns about the power over their bodies, right? Well, one thing that we need to understand is that at this time, the vaccines are not mandated, uh, which is very important, right? And, and this is something that uh, I think is a, a big change in public health. You know, we went from eras where mandatory vaccination, and we see it for schools, we see it for certain uh, employment opportunities in which being vaccinated, vaccinated was a mandate, unless you had some sort of religious or medical reason not to do so, you had to have your vaccine in order to participate uh, in these areas. And we don't see that right now with the COVID-19 vaccine. To be frank, I am hoping it never gets to that point because I am a believer in individuals making their own choice, making their own decision when it comes to interventions like this, just as right with my own patients that I take care of day, day in and day out. Um, I am very respectful of their autonomy in making decisions for themselves and their health. And so I'm hoping that it does not get to that point uh, as far as mandating these vaccines. But one thing that I do want to be mandated, and really uh, this is a mandate right for ourselves in that when we are making this, these decisions about what goes into our bodies, let's base it on the facts. Just as you would do the research for a food item you picked up in a grocery aisle, you read the nutrition facts, you might even do some additional research on your own before purchasing that product. Well, the same thing goes into making this decision about being vaccinated against COVID-19. Do your due diligence. And when I say that, I am not just talking about right selecting the first match on your Google search, uh, but I'm talking about doing a little bit of deep work, going to 
uh, if you can, even the primary literature might be difficult to understand. But going to that literature, right, the New England Journal of Medicine, for instance, uh, all of their and many publications are actually doing this. All of their COVID-19 information, including vaccine information, information on trials that have been done, phase three trials, uh, even the advisory committee on immunization practices. Right. They publish all of their data. They actually publish those proceedings on April 23rd, where they basically authorize the resumption of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine administration throughout the country. Those proceedings were up there for all to view, to, for all to watch live. Right. That is where I want you to go for your information uh, or trusted sites. Right. Such as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you're in New York City, NYC.gov, I mean, we probably reference that and refer people to that on Health in Harlem each and every week because it is a center where you will get reliable, real information. I need you to be wary of what you find and seek out on social media. Right. Unfortunately, as much as uh, I think our aunties and uncles and cousins, even our parents. Right. As, as they do, I firmly believe they have our best interests in mind. Uh, unfortunately, though, the information that sometimes come for, comes from them is misinformation. Right. It is information that they've gathered that might not be totally correct. That might be misleading in some ways. Uh, and sometimes it could even be disinformation, right? Disinformation, as we've talked about before, is information that it was willfully right. Wrong information that is willfully spread. Um, it is information that can be manipulated and spread for various reasons. Either individuals want to profit from you. They might want to change your political or religious leanings. Uh, or in general, they just have an agenda, right? That is what we need to be wary and mindful of, that disinformation out there. And it can come from any place. It can come from anywhere. So as we're doing our research, we need to, right? This is the skeptics out there. You're doing your research, but just be mindful of where that information is coming from, the motive of the individuals that are presenting that information, the potential conflicts of interest, right? Uh, disclosures about what is funding that information source, who are the people behind it, where do their funds come from, and really you can get a better idea as to what is being presented to you and why. And therefore, right, you can then begin to discern what is real and actual useful information from what is information that might mislead you and cause you to make a decision that might not be the best decision for yourself because it would not be an informed, a truly informed decision. That's what we really need to uh, sort of be mindful of. And, you know, uh, another thing that was noted in that article was that uh, especially amongst individual of particular religious zeal, um, they can be very, very hesitant. And we see that actually here in the United States especially amongst evangelical Christians. And, you know, some of the arguments uh, coming from this group is that, hey, this is God's will, right? This virus is out there. And if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Understood 100 percent. 
and you have every right to that belief. But as a Christian man, I would counter that to say that, hey, you know what else is God's will and what's God's plan is, as we said, those individuals whose life work, who have really just put everything on the line to develop these interventions. Uh, that's God's will, God's will, too. Right. God gave us these tools <laughs> through working through you know, hundreds and thousands of individuals that are going into labs each and every day that are doing the quality control in the production of these vaccines, the truck drivers that are delivering this intervention to administration sites all across the country and around the world. Um, you know, that's what that's a part of God's plan and will as well. And so it is something I think to be considered, right? Why? die from COVID-19 if we can prevent it? Why suffer from long COVID if we don't have to, right? Those are the the things we need to think about. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I apologize once again for being a talking head on this program. And I thank you for your patience, especially the, the skeptics out there, the individuals that are totally resistant. If you stayed with me up to this point, thank you very much for your time and attention. And... With that said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to thank my colleagues on Health in Harlem and a shout out to them all. Giorgio, Reed, Anastasia, Ashley, Michael Holmes, Ben Suferi, uh, Anastasia Data. Just want to thank you all. And ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.